on the night he was betrayed, Jesus, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for giving us the gift of the word. We ask that you speak clearly to us through it today. Help us to not just listen, but to truly obey for our joy and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Chase. You guys give it up for Chase. Um, hey, I'm Jonathan. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here uh, at the Heights. Really glad you're here this morning. Um, you know, it's hard to get up and read a Bible, the Bible passage like that. So thank you. Much honor to you, Chase. Um, we're in the series in this New Testament book uh, called 1 Corinthians. And we've been working chapter by chapter, passage by passage uh, through this book. And we've seen this one theme, this like woven theme through the whole through the whole book and it's this one line as we've been saying this every week this is the big idea God loves us in our mess but he loves us too much to leave us in it and we oftentimes get ourselves tied up in a mess now the mess that's kind of swirling around in this back half of first Corinthians chapter 11 is the mess of divisions and cliques and disunity not outside the church but inside the church. That's the problem we're looking at this morning. Now, um, we hear that and we're like, yeah, of course that's bad. But let me ask you a question. Let's make this more personal. Like, how many of you have ever felt left out of something? Okay, so like mo- half the room's honest. The other, you know, other half, you guys are the excluders, I guess, right? Is that what you're trying to say? Um, no, we've all felt left out of things. No one likes feeling like that. Have you, have you ever felt like you're the one person on the outside looking in? Like, like you're part of it by name and association, but, but you couldn't feel more like an outsider. I think we've all felt that. I think we would all agree, like, that kind of sucks, right? Like, no one likes that. No one likes to feel that way. Uh, in fact, uh, there's this, like, magnetic draw for all of us to want to be a part of, like, something, but not just something, like, the inner circle of things, right? Like, who loves me, in, like, on the inside of an inside joke? Who loves being, like, associated with the inside group? Like, we all love that. Uh, in C.S. Lewis's essay, um, he calls this the inner ring. His essay is entitled, uh, Beware the Temptation of the Inner Ring. Very C.S. Lewis of him to call it that. He's talking about the feeling of being an outsider. He goes on to say this. He says, I believe that in all men's lives at certain periods, so certain periods, and in many men's lives at all periods between infancy and extreme old age, your whole life, right? Like your whole life. That's what he's saying. One of the most dominant elements is this. Listen to this. Is the desire to be inside the local ring, like the inside ring. Like we all love it. And... Just as much as we want that, he also says we, we have this terror, this feeling of being left out. We hate it for good reason. It's terrible. I remember um, I was a freshman in high school and I was on the baseball team and uh, I was on the team. I had the uniform. Actually, I brought you guys a, a picture. <laughs> go Patriots. Go Pats, go. Um, I was on the team. I'm going I'm to leave that up for like 10 seconds, Josh, all right? I was on the team. I had the uniform, um, I had a position, I was in the starting nine, I used to have like the eye black like all over, thank you Josh, that's my guy, all over my face, like I was on the team in every way, but listen, as an underclassman, as a freshman, I could not have felt more like an outsider, 
There was a clique, and it was made up of eight players. And if you're familiar with baseball, there's nine, nine starting. There were eight of them that were a clique, and then there was me. And I was the outsider. Like, I felt it. I lived it. And, and I wished it. I wish so much that was just high school, right? Like, don't we all wish, like, well, you know, that's just how kids are in high school. Well, you know what? That's how kids are when they grow up, too, isn't it? Right? Like, our world isn't just, like, immune to those things. Like, we, we've all experienced that. Social circles, friend groups. And the, there was, I was clearly not part of the inside. And unfortunately, it didn't take me long to figure that out. And it didn't take me long to figure out that's how our world works. Now, the reason I share you that story is not so you guys will come pat me on the back after this. But like, Jonathan, we love you. No, it's okay. You're on my inside circle, right? <laughs> like, I'm, I'm mostly okay, okay? I'm, I'm, it's been 20 years, but I'm, I'm, I'm working through it, okay? I'm mostly turned out. But the reason I, we talk about this is because clicky, divided, insider, superior, inferior culture of our world is not only familiar to us, but it's been ex- we've experienced it, not just out there, but in here. That's the reason Paul's writing to the, fir- the church in Corinth, is because the, my high school experience was being experienced inside the church in 1 Corinthians, and if it was being experienced inside the church in, in Corinth in the first century, it's probably happening in our church right now, and we ought to pay attention to that. You see, the reality is Jesus, thinking about the church, dying for the church, setting up the church, had a very intentional vision for what the church would be, and it, that it would be a, a bastion of relational beauty that sits squarely counterculture to the world around us. But the problem is we see the, the culture of our world, of our city, creeping into the church, specifically around relationships. And so the big idea for us this morning, as we look at 1 Corinthians 11, the second half, is this, that God loves us in our clicky mess, but he loves us too much to leave us in that mess, so we must come together. We must come together. That's going to be his solution. So what he's going to do here in this passage is he's going to raise a problem for us that we all feel, and then he's going to show us the solution. That's, those are the two things we're looking at this morning. So are you guys ready to look at the problem? The problem is a strong divides and clicks in the church. That's what we're going to look at. So look with me, starting in verse 17. It says, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. He's being kind of nice here when he could be kind of mean, Right? He says, for, to begin with, let me just start with this. I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there are factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized. So, so I can tell who's participating in the clique and who isn't. So here Paul's saying, guys, listen, I love you. You are loved by God, you're loved by me, but I am not happy with you. You ever like, had this feeling where it's like, I love you, but I don't like you right now? You know the feeling? That's what Paul feels towards the church. I'm not happy with you right now. It seems like you're doing more damage when you get together than you are good. You're actually being together. You're harming one another more than you're building each other up. He says, I've heard that the way you've been behaving is the same as our world. There's cliques and divisions. There's the inside group. And he says, you know what? I believe it. I can see this happening. The culture of the city has crept in. Then he picks up in verse 20, he says this, when you come together, which by the way, this phrase come together is going to be a big theme for us this morning. When you come together then, is it not to eat the Lord's supper? For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. 
So the one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Now, what should I say? Should I praise you? That's how I started. Nope, I do not praise you for this matter. So let me give you just a little backdrop, a little context of what's happening right here. So uh, in the city of Corinth, like in much of the first century Greco-Roman world, social, social stratification played a huge role in society, all right? So social stratification, what you did for work, the family you're from, how much money you have, like totally big dividing lines in culture, right? We see that too. But specifically in the first century world, very sharp divide. Now, now most scholars in the, are, are, are agree that in this specific scenario in Corinth, there were rich people and poor people in church together. What would we say? Is that good or bad? That's good. We would say like the working class and the white collar class are together in church together. Is that good or bad? That's good, right? Like what we see happening here in this passage is Acts 2 realities actually creating this beautiful, beautiful counterculture, right? We have wealthy and poor coming together weekly to be together, like beautiful diversity. We have social classes coming together under Jesus. We have, we have different working classes coming together. We have different races coming together. We have people from different languages coming together, right? This is a beautiful thing, right? That's Acts 2 stuff. That's a, all things in common stuff. But as time passed, what happened was that the culture of the city crept into the culture of the church. And so what you've got to understand, I looked for a chart. I couldn't really find one. What was happening in the first century churches, most first century Corinthian homes had a dining room that could fit eight to ten people, so like a normal-sized dining room. And then on the kind of the outside of the house, there was this thing called an atrium or like a, a covered courtyard. So imagine it's kind of outside, kind of inside, right? They could fit 60 people or so. So what was happening in this context was as the church came together, we see this beautiful thing where the, those who owned homes who were part of the church, the wealthier, the wealthier contingency of the church said, hey, the church should gather at my house. Beautiful. Acts 2, sharing life. We should meet at my house. That was a beautiful intention. But what happens here in Corinth, what Paul's addressing here, is that a lot of people would, as the church would come together, they would eat together, they would sing, they would worship, they would give, they would, there would be a teaching, and then they would take the Lord's Supper, communion after all of that. And what's happening is a lot of times the church would gather on a Sunday night uh, because a lot, Sunday was a work day. So the, the, the more wealthy and elite folks who had more flexibility could show up a little bit earlier than the working class. They could bring a little bit nicer food with them for dinner than the working class. And what happened was it makes sense, right? The, the in, initially, this was innocent. They came, they sat in the dining room, as everyone would. But then an hour later, everyone else showed up, and there wasn't room in the dining room, so they were in the atrium. Well, then some of them didn't even have food to bring with them. In fact, uh, one of the scholars kind of gives us this, kind of paints the picture for us as this, there's this, this group of people in the dining room and a group of people over in the atrium. He says this, in that setting, they might not have even be, been served food at all. Talking about this poorer group of people out in the atrium. Or perhaps they were served food of a different kind, suitable for people of a lower class or community status. So if they didn't bring food, maybe there was food served, but it was different than what was happening in here. And what we see here is the problem begins. The click begins innocently at first, over time, intentionally. You guys with me? You see what's happening here? Does that make you happy or sad? That's what I asked my three-year-old. Makes us sad, right? 
Like, we see this, and there's something in us that's like, that's not right. Like, they shouldn't do that. Like, like what, how could they do that? How could they be so blind? How could they be so insensitive? How could they be so exclusive? How could they be so clicky as a church? And we should feel that way. We should feel that way, especially Christians. I think it's easy for us to see that we should feel upset. Obviously, this isn't the exact scenario that's happening here at the Heights. Like, like we don't seat you by your socioeconomic class here, right? In fact, I would love for more people to come up front. You guys want to come on up front? Like, we would love that, actually. Like, come on up. But here's the problem, guys. While it's easy for us to write this off and say, well, we, we, we don't, obviously we won't do that. There are some sneaky, subtle ways that these types of divisions, these types of cliques form right here under our nose if we don't watch it. If we're not paying attention, we can do the same thing. It's, it looks different, but it's equally hurtful. It's equally destructive. It's equally harmful to each other. And typically, the way that looks is not that we're dividing up who eats where, but we leave people out of stuff. Sometimes accidentally, but sometimes intentionally. We leave people out of stuff. So there's a lot of ways we do this. I'm going to give you four. And uh, I was thinking about our church. I was stepping away. I was talking to our staff. We kind of brainstormed. What are the ways that, we're, that we as a church, we, we as a unique church, the Heights Church in Denver 2023, how do we do this? Like what are the traps that we can fall into without knowing? What, is, what are our blind spots, our relational blind spots? And I, there's probably 10 of them. I put four of them because I don't have enough time to give all 10 of them. So we boiled them down to, to these four. Um, the first of which is this new old heights divide. Here's what I mean by that. I'm not talking about age. I'm talking about how long you've been around and how connected you are here. Because here's the thing. It, who here, you, you all should raise your hand to this, right? Who here was a, came here for the very first time at one point? Uh, every one of us. Who remembers the first time they walked through the doors? Anybody remember? Okay. Yeah, we, we remember that. What, what becomes so easy for us is is we walk through the doors, we get over that initial scary hump of walking through those doors, you come into this lobby, which is super confusing, there are a total of five stairwells, two go down to the bathroom and kids space, three come up here, you don't know which one, we have some incredible like art deco style signage that you can never read and you never pay attention to, it's amazing, but it's, it's cool, but it's not very clear, um, you end up in the men's bathroom trying to get up here, right, like that's happened. But like, you walk in for the first time and you're like, well, where do I go? How do I get to the auditorium? Then you're a little late, which is fine. That's fine. But you walk up this stairwell and you pop up and you're like, oh, I'm in the middle of everything, (laughs) right? Like I'm seen, everyone knows I'm here. But we don't know, if you're new, you're like, oh my gosh, like, will these people like me? Then you come up here and like, well, well, are they gonna make me do anything uncomfortable? Like, is anyone gonna talk to me, sit with me? Like, am I dressed appropriately? Like, what if I'm overdressed? What if I'm underdressed? Like, what if I don't feel like I fit here? Like, we've all been new here. We've all had those anxieties. But here's our propensity is if you've been around and you have friends, you're like, no, I've got my people. Like, good luck. Like, it's not intentional. It just happens. And this is one of the ways that we can draw divisive lines. We create cliques and we leave each other out. Period. We leave each other out. New, old. (laughs) Number two. Life stage. 
we can accidentally and sometimes unintentionally draw life stage lines. I'll give you a couple examples. Families quit getting invited to stuff because their kids have bedtimes. Single folks quit, quit getting invited to stuff because they don't have kids. They're like, well, I don't know anything about car seats or sleep sacks or feeding times or public education. Like, I don't know. And then you've got like this contingency of young married. I'm going to leave a group out, so I forgive me. You got this contingency of like young married. They're like, well, we used to run with that crowd, but like we're married now, so we don't quite run in that crowd. But then like we don't know anything about kids either. And so like, where are we? And we accidentally draw these lines and boundaries around ourselves and we leave each other out of stuff. And like, that's not what Jesus intended for the church. Like, that's not what he, that's not what he wants. We can accidentally do that with our life stage. We begin to leave people out. There's a lot of examples. I got to move on. Number two is lifestyle. Or three, excuse me. Number three is lifestyle. This is this especially dangerous one, all right? Because what we do is we, we kind of get a few friends around us that like, that think like us, that act like us, that want to spend their money like us, and we just sort of insulate. And we like curate a lifestyle for ourselves where we never actually have to interact with anyone and we leave people on the social fringes on their own. And we say, well, somebody else will find them. Like somebody, somebody else will befriend them. And then no one does. And then they walk out of these doors and they say, well, that's just what I thought Christians were like. Of course, no one wanted me. I thought this was a place where I would be wanted. We accidentally do this. And then fourth is socioeconomic. Careers, income levels plunge us to different stages in life and different friend groups. It can change the way where we live, where our kids go to school, where we go out to eat, where and how often we vacation. And the point really in all these is it's not bad. All these are really good things. Like these are good things to hold in balance, right? Like, like, like the point isn't it's bad to be rich or it's bad to be poor, but the point is if we let those characteristics in our lives be the primary defining things of what, what our social circles look like, we've missed the point. Like, that's a problem. That's when it becomes a problem. It's not bad to be around for a while and have friends. We want that. But, like, if we're not considered of being new, the new person, then that's a bad thing. It, it's not bad to embrace our life stage. Like, what are, we, what are we supposed to do? Like, if you're married, you're married. If you're single, you're single. If you if you're, have kids, you have little kids. Like, you have bedtimes at 7 p.m. Like, we have people over after 8 because then I can get my kids down and then I can have a, resume my normal life with real people, right? So it's like, these aren't bad things, but if they become the things that we draw circles around and we never let other people in or we pursue other people outside of it, like, we, we're doing the same thing the First Corinthian church did. We're dividing each other up, we're forming into cliques, and ultimately we're going to leave people out. Well, guys, Jesus himself steps out of the throne room of heaven in human history, and he did this very thing and modeled it for us. Philippians 2, Jason read this in our call to worship. He says, do nothing from, this is Paul, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Key verse, verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests. He says, look at your own interests, but not exclusively. Look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then take this mind, this attitude, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he had every right to stay isolated and stay in his clique. 
Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, something to hold on to, something to be exploited. But he emptied himself. That's the attitude of Jesus. He emptied himself by how? By taking on the form of a servant. The heartbeat of 1 Corinthians 11 is that we come together as a church family. We don't draw lines, but we, we come together. We come together. Paul says it five times in this passage. Come together, come together, come together. We come together in unity around the right things, and we stop drawing hard lines around the wrong things. And the solution, is what we're going to talk about now, to the, our fractured, clicky, divided church is just that. It's to come together. So we're going to unpack what that looks like. You should be asking, well, what does that look like, Jonathan? We'll get there in just a second. It's going to be way more simple than what you think. So the solution for us as a church is for us to come together. Now, um, each week, um, if you preach on the stage, you read your sermon to a group of our staff, and they critique it, all right? So we do that every week. They give feedback, what's clear, what's confusing. I, so I was reading the sermon. At this point in the sermon, um, I, I was strongly encouraged to cut this part out. Um, so I, I kind of did. Um, I had this amazing, has he, who's seen Remember the Titans? Okay, I, Coach, Coach Boone is like giving this speech that's like, we must come together, and I wanted to read it to you guys, but it's so intense and so dramatic that they told me I couldn't read it, so here's what I'm going to say. <laughs> if you think my sermon sucks after this, you can blame them, all right? Because I was going to include it, I was going to make a fool of myself. It was going to inspire your socks off, I'm just going to tell you that. The solution is that we must come together, church family. The single most unifying factor in the church is the cross of Jesus Christ, period. Like, it, it, all things are made common at the feet of Jesus. This is the one place where, listen, your social status does not mean a thing. It's the one place, your social status, your financial status, your good looks. And I said this in the first service, we are a good-looking church, I'll just tell you. They don't mean anything. Your personality doesn't mean anything. Your success doesn't mean anything. Because at the foot of Jesus' cross, we are all equal. There are no cliques. There are no divisions. There's one faith and one Lord and one baptism. There's one. One church. And that's why, as you'll see in just a second as we begin to talk about communion, one of the primary purposes of communion is to remind us of that thing. At the foot of the cross, it's all even. It's all equal. Now, look with me at verse 23. This is the famous lines that kind of inform what we say and how we think about communion. Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took the bread, and when he'd given it, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and after supper, he said, this is my cup. This cup is, excuse me, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, as often as you take communion, which for us is most weeks we do that here at the Heist, most weeks, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, so here are the lines. We say this in most response, like in a few minutes, Corbin's going to come up, we need some response. Most Sundays, I do that. You hear me say these lines. Most of you, if you've been around the Heights for a while, you like have totally turned, tuned that out at this point, right? Um, but here's what I want to do. I want to draw us back in to see what Jesus is saying here and why this really matters for us. 
What Jesus is doing here is, or what Paul's doing here is he's referring back to this one scene where Jesus is with his disciples. It's Thursday night of Holy Week. They have the Passover meal. Afterwards, they're reclining at the table. Jesus does this very thing, the very first Lord's Supper, the, the communion. And, and he takes the, the body and the blood and he models it for his disciples. Then we see early in the, in the life of the church in Acts 2, a few years, weeks, months, years later, the church upholds this practice. They're doing it almost every week seemingly. And then here Paul says, actually, I'm going to take it one step further. I'm going to give you a little more instructions and understanding of what's happening as you take the Lord's Supper. So that, that, that's kind of what's happening here, right? And so What's, what's interesting, this is what I don't want you to miss. This is, this is, this is the thing that we tune out on because we're familiar with it, but this is the thing I don't want you to miss. We'll get the how and the how not to in just a second. It's controversial, don't worry. But Paul's point here is very simple. It's very simple when we take communion. In fact, one author kind of sums it up like this. He says, thus the Lord's Supper or communion is the place where on an ongoing basis, time after time after time, Christians accept again the judgment verdict that they are sinners, that we're guilty before Jesus. We're guilty before God. And, this is the good news of the gospel, that Christ died to overcome that verdict. We were guilty, but we're not anymore. We were, but God. Every week we remember that. Do you know why? Because we forget it every week. By the time Saturday rolls around, I'm feeling guilty about stuff. By the time Saturday rolls around, I'm like, well, God's probably mad at me. He feels distant. And on Sunday morning, we come and we gather and we're remembered. We remember this line, that God remembers our sin no more. We come together to take communion to remember that God remembers our sin no more. That's the key line for us. He's, he's, he's reminding us that this is our grounds for unity. At the foot of the cross, the body of blood the body of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, in that place, there are no cliques, there are no divisions. There's one Lord who died for you and for me, period. And nothing else matters. No, no other things can compete with that. God rem- we remember that God remembers our sin no more. You see, baptism, like we did just, just a little bit ago, is the, the, the entry point into the Christian faith. And then communion is the reminder of the ongoing basis of the Christian faith. Those are the two institutions given to us by Jesus. And so if you're not a Christian, um, you, we'll say something like this in just a few minutes with our response time. We'll say, we actually are asking that you not take this meal um, because we believe there's something better for you. And you're sitting there thinking, yeah, 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 but you're talking about how inclusive this group of people were, and then you're drawing this super exclusive line, Jonathan. And I'll just say this, the intent is to never leave you out of something amazing. Obviously, we want something amazing for you. But here's what I would say. This does, it wouldn't make sense. If you, if you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, it wouldn't make sense for you to take this meal. Because in taking this meal, what you're doing is you're standing up and you're publicly professing to this whole room that I have no hope in life or in death apart from the blood of Jesus and his resurrection in my place. Like that, that, that's what you're saying, that I'm, a, I'm dead guilty, but Jesus saved me. So it wouldn't make a ton of sense for you to come and take communion. That's why we say, we don't want you to take this thing. We actually want you to take a better thing, and that's Jesus himself. We want you to receive Jesus and trust Jesus and have Jesus turn your whole life upside down in the best way possible. So, thinking back to our problem and our solution here. The divisions is the 
problem, the solution is for us to come together. What does this actually look like? Now, I'm going to get into this text. It's going to be a little technical, so hang with me. You guys okay? We need to like stand up and stretch for a minute. No, you're good? Okay. It's going to be a little technical, so just hang with me here. This is what Paul says right after he gives the instructions on how to take communion. He says, he gives us this, these next few lines, verse 27. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. So let's look at that phrase, unworthy manner. This is scary, right? Like we look at this, we're thinking, what in the world does this mean? If you grew up in the church, uh, like I did, I grew up in the church and I was really scared of this my whole life. I was like, wait, am I doing it wrong? That was the question. And if so, what are the implications? Because you're going to see they're real serious here in a minute. So like, what does that mean? What is Paul talking about when he says, don't do this in an unworthy manner. And in fact, some of you who have felt anxious about that before have probably skipped out on taking communion before because you've thought, well, it's better that I don't take it than do take it because if I do it in the wrong way, the consequences are bad. If I don't do it at all, I think I'll be okay, right? Like that's kind of like our, our, our thinking that, and that's very rational, right? So what do we make of this? Well, what Paul's talking about is in taking communion in an unworthy way is doing it like the Corinthians, which is excluding people, which is living with cliques and divisions and not doing anything about it, not being a reconciling group of people. He's talking about being disunified with your community, leaving people out intentionally, and then taking communion anyways, which is inconsistent with what we believe as Christians. Because what we're functionally saying at the communion table is that I'm even and I'm equal with everyone else. We're not saying that the social stratifications from out there have made their way in here. And so practically speaking, like you can rest easy if you're not a promoter of disunity in this room. Because the unworthy manner in this context is the people that we're leaving people out. So how do we know? How do we know then? If you're sitting here, you're like, yeah, 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 okay, that sounds good, but like, I haven't been leaving people out in that way, but like, how do I know if I've been leaving people out in another way that you just talked about? Like, how do I know? What if, what do I do? Well, that's what Paul says in verse 28. This is a super simple line. These five words, let a person examine himself. We self-judge. We look inside and we say, do I have relational conflict and strife in me? Have I promoted it in my community, in this church family? Have I left people out? Well, here's the thing. If you have, great news. There's an opportunity. There's something called reconciliation and repentance, which is where, welcome to the club. We've all done this in certain ways, and the good news of the gospel is that that isn't the final verdict about us. But the the good news of the gospel is that we can examine ourselves, and then we can say, hey, I, I, I accidentally left you out. And the Lord just brought that to mind as I was getting ready to take communion. And I want to apologize to you, and I want to say I'm sorry. And then you know what you do? Then you can go with a clear conscience and take communion because you've reconciled. Now, some of you, it's more complicated than that, but that's the point of this. This is what Paul is doing. He's tying our access to the communion table to our relational health, which is something that we really ought to pay attention to. So he says, let a person examine himself, and in this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. So if you've examined yourself and your conscience is clean, then go forward and freely take of this meal, remembering that God doesn't remember your sins anymore. 
So, we judge ourselves, we self-judge to avert final judgment. That's what we do. Verse 29 says this, For if anyone drink, eat, eats and drinks without recognizing, without considering these realities, without recognizing the body, he eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. A.K.A., this is the New Testament nice way of saying they've, they've died. Because they didn't judge themselves, and they didn't reconcile, and they lived with relational strife, and they didn't obey Jesus, and they took communion anyways because they didn't care. They perpetuated cliques. Now, this is serious, guys. You're like, oh, he smokes. What's this guy going to say about this? This is serious. Sickness and even death and all over disunity in the church. But you know what it teaches us? You know what it shows us? It shows us that we probably have a low view of God's church if we feel that way. It, it, it probably shows us how serious Jesus actually takes this, this thing gathered together. Like, we really aren't a social club. Like, this is actually a serious thing that Jesus shed blood for and died for. Like, this, this. I think we ought to consider that. In fact, I, 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 I don't want to weaponize this, and I want to share this really humbly and, uh, and sensitively. But what Paul's talking about, I've actually seen happen in a church in the 2000s. Now, they're not in Denver, so don't worry about that. Don't think about that. But I watched a church that had a few folks that were really holding on to a very divisive stance and a position that was really harmful and hurting a lot of people. And um, I, I, it's the New Testament. I don't know what to tell you, but one by one, they all fell asleep. And the church moved on. And I think it's a warning for us, church family, that our small little problems that we think are small and our, our small dis disunity and divisions and cliques that we think are harmless are actually hurting people, but they also put us in opposition to the living God. And like, I, I don't say that lightly. I want to be really careful and tread lightly because like that could be really misunderstood. But as we put ourselves under the authority of the New Testament, I, we have to obey Jesus and we want to obey Jesus. And so let's take the church as seriously as Jesus takes the church. Let's be quick to reconcile. If there's relational strife in your life, let's take care of it. Verse 31. If we were properly judging ourselves, so if we're evaluating ourselves, we would not be judged. We would avert the final judgment. We would avert God's judgment. But when we are judged by the Lord, here's the grace. We're not destroyed instantly, but we're, we're disciplined. And God's discipline for us is often good. It, it, not often, it's always good for us. So that we may not be condemned by the world. So here's what I want to do, church family. I want to give you really practically, I want to give you a word on communion as we take communion practically, and then I want to give you five ways to come together as a church, five ways for us to build together, all right? So first, a word on communion. Um, let me just say this. If you trust Jesus, if you trusted him with your whole life, salvation, if you've been publicly baptized in his name, in communion, we remember that God remembers our sin no more. We don't have to go back to our seats in communion and try to think of something bad to feel about ourselves. I have to confess everything bad I've ever done in my life every time before I come forward, or I might fall asleep. No, that's not actually what the text says. The text says it's a very specific 
type of sin, which is relational division in the church, not just sin in general. So I want to be really clear. So if, you're, if you've trusted Jesus, you've examined yourself, and you say, I don't have any beef with anybody here. I don't have any hard feelings. I'm not harboring bitterness towards any, anybody here. I haven't left anybody out. Then come forward, take the blood and the body of Christ, and remember that God remembers your sins no more. There's so much freedom here, church family. The self-examination piece is tied to relational divisions, not general sins. So there's a word of freedom. Do your self-examination at your table, at your seat. Come to the table and freely receive the body and the blood, remembering that God remembers your sins no more. So, five ways for us to come together. It's really hard for me not to be, want to be Denzel Washington right now charging you guys up, okay? The, the last few verses here, Paul says this, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together, there it is again, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. So if you're going to eat together, then make sure everybody gets to eat. That's what he's saying. If anyone is hungry, he should just eat at home, so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. He's like, I... It's probably just better. You guys cannot, are not mature enough to figure this out, so just don't eat at church. Like, that's probably the easiest solution. Or else you're going to bring judgment on yourself because you guys keep excluding people. I will give instructions about the other matters when I come. Paul says the line, when we come together, when we gather together. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you five really quick hit practical ways that we as a church family, how you as an individual part of this church family can come together and we can create the beautiful picture of Christian community like Jesus had in mind. Number one is that we just show up. We show up physically. We show up emotionally for each other. When we move, we show up. We show up here physically to be together. We show up at our community groups. We don't have the like last minute, I had a bad day, I'm not going to make it to community group text. We don't do that here, right? We say, I had a bad day, so I'm coming because I need love. That's what we do. We show up for each other. We care for each other. We sacrifice for each other. We show up. Number two, uh, we look more at commonalities than we do differences. We come into the space and we say, I'm more like you than I am different, and I want to choose to see the commonalities we share over the differences that we might have. Number three, we prioritize each other's preferences. Think about this, guys. Let me just paint this picture for you. Philippians 2 says, consider others more important than yourself. Think about their interests before your own. Like, think about that. If everybody did that, everyone would feel like someone's interested in them. If, if we all had the attitude that I'm here for you, then no one would be left out, right? So we, we prioritize those preferences. Number three, be a radical includer. Includer is not a real word. It, my, doc, my word doc kept buzzing me about that. It's not a real word. I made it up. One of our leadership behaviors here is include the excluded. We look for people that are by themselves. We look for people that look lost, and we say, hey, would you like to come sit with me? Or, or, or hey, are you in a community group? Oh, you're not? I don't know how to get you in one, but I think I can find somebody that can help us. We, like, look for that. We have eyes for that. Oh, this is your first time here? You need someone to sit with? I would love for you to come sit with my friends. I want you to meet Jason, my friend. That's what we do. Be a radical includer. And then number five, be a Derek McKinney. Now, who knows Derek McKinney? Yeah, if you raise your hand, you're going to be lying anyways, because he was on my high school baseball team. Now, before you get super sad for little freshman Jonathan, here's what you need to know. I only told half the story. 
like pastors do a lot of times. <laughs> I'm just kidding. For reasons like this. There's this full circle, complete moment for me as a freshman with all these upperclassmen where Derek McKinney, he was our, he was our catcher, he was a senior, and he was our team captain. Where he saw what was happening to me, he pulled the click aside. I don't know what he said to them. It was not good, though. It was good for me. It was kind of bad for them. And he busted up the click, and he befriended me. He cared for me. He loved me. He saw me. He included me. Be a Derek McKinney. I don't know if Derek's a Christian. I don't know where he is. I'll probably try to find him after this and thank him. Be a Derek McKinney. Because what Derek McKinney did for me is the same thing Jesus did for me and you. Is he stepped out of his position in the throne room of heaven. He took on human flesh. He entered human history. He included the excluded. And you know what, church family? He reaches out his hands and says, I want to invite you into the inner circle. I want you. I see you and I want you and you belong here. And that's the heart of Christianity. That's the heart of the gospel. That's what we believe creates a counterculture right here. So here's what I'm going to do, church family. I'm going to pray for us. And then Corbin's going to come and lead us in our response time. God loves us in our mess, but he loves us too much to leave us in our divided, clicky mess. Lord Jesus, we love you and we trust you. We trust that your intentions for us are really good. And we trust that your intentions for this church is really good, are really good. And, and we want to be a place of relational beauty. We want to be a place where we include the excluded, where we remember in the act of communion that you remember our sins no more, and that that would be the leveling reality of this church, Lord. Would you help us to respond to you in Jesus' name? Amen.